This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is the power of prayer. In the first half, Bruce D. Porter shares his address, Did You Think to Pray? Then in the second half, Joseph Fielding McConkie speaks on Finding Answers. Some years ago, I heard a story told of a little boy in primary class who was asked to say the opening prayer. Heavenly Father, said the boy, I thank thee for the letter A. I thank thee for the letter B. I thank thee for the letter C. The teacher realized this could be a very long prayer, but she restrained herself from stopping him. He went on to give thanks for every letter of the alphabet all the way through Z. And then he said, And Heavenly Father, I thank Thee for the number one. (laughs) I thank Thee for the number two. And so on he went. His teacher nearly panicked. She didn't know how high the boy could count. She felt she just had to stop him. But again, something seemed to restrain her. The boy kept on praying until he reached the number 20. And then he said, And Heavenly Father, I thank thee for my primary teacher, who is the only grown-up that ever let me finish my prayer. (laughs) I have thought of that boy's prayer often. It's helped me come to realize that I, too, am thankful for the alphabet and for the numbers and for the shapes and the colors, for all the things I learned in elementary school, things so easily taken for granted the foundation stones of all learning. I feel grateful for every miraculous gift of God, for the wonders of His love, for the beauty of His creations, for all that is good and right and true flowing down from our Father in heaven on high, for the beauty of the earth, for the beauty of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. I am thankful especially for the gift of prayer, which is surely among the greatest of gifts given by our Father in Heaven to His children on earth. Prayer is the ordained means by which men and women, and even little children, come to know God. It is our channel of communication with Heaven. It is a priceless privilege. My mother grew up in the small town of Liberty, Utah. When she was young, in the 1930s, her ward had an organist who could play only one hymn. The congregation sang other hymns a cappella, but at least once every Sunday they would sing, Ere you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? I especially love the third verse of the hymn, When sore trials came upon you, did you think to pray? When your soul was filled with sorrow, Balm of Gilead did you borrow at the gate of day. I think of the gate of day as the door to a realm of eternal daylight, a gate that connects us with our heavenly home, the realm of glory where God and Christ dwell. When we pray, we borrow strength, love, and light at the very gate of eternity. Yet all too easily our prayers can become repetitive and perfunctory a mere check on a checklist of duties and tasks in a given day. 
I said my prayers can be a phrase as routine and ordinary as I did my homework or I did the grocery shopping. But prayer was never meant to be ordinary. It can be among the most exalted privileges we enjoy in this mortal sphere. Several years ago, our oldest son shared with me a lesson he had learned about prayer. It was after his mission, and he was a student here at BYU. One evening he sat down to eat a quick dinner, and out of pure habit he said, Please bless this food to nourish and strengthen my body. He opened his eyes and looked at the food. It was a Twinkie and a can of soda. He knew there was no way that food was going to nourish and strengthen his body. He later explained to me that the experience taught him the meaning of the phrase, vain repetitions. When we repeat the same stock phrases over and over again in prayer, but not with real intent, when our heart and mind are not in the prayer, then we are only engaging in vain repetitions. Moroni's admonition about praying to know the truth of the Book of Mormon applies to all prayers, namely that we ask with a sincere heart, with real intent. True prayer is heartfelt. The words convey our deeply felt desires and are coupled with a commitment to act on the divine guidance we receive. Heartfelt prayer comes from the depths of the soul. Our mind and heart are directed toward God with full and complete attention. When we pray from the heart, we are not just saying words or going through the motions. We are seeking to draw, to draw nearer to our Father in heaven, to commune with Him in a personal manner. Heartfelt prayer is the furthest thing from a memorized recitation. We do not simply talk at God. Rather, we talk with Him. This does not imply a face-to-face -face conversation as Moses experienced, but it does suggest communing with God by listening to the still, small voice of the Spirit. It means allowing time both during a prayer and after a prayer to hear spiritual promptings. In Shakespeare's play Hamlet, Claudius, king of Denmark, kneels in prayer to seek forgiveness. But upon rising, he knows that his entire prayer has been insincere and in vain. He says, My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. The Lord desires that we speak with him openly, honestly, and in plain, simple words. Any attempt at pretense in prayer is pointless, for the Lord knows our hearts perfectly. Indeed, insincerity in prayer can become a subtle form of hypocrisy. Huckleberry Finn in Mark Twain's great novel learned this when he tried to pray for forgiveness for having helped his black friend, Jim, escape from slavery. He said, I made up my mind to pray and see if I couldn't quit being the kind of boy I was and be better. So I kneeled down. But the words wouldn't come. Why wouldn't they come? It weren't no use to try and hide it from him, nor from me neither. I knowed very well why they wouldn't come. It was because my heart weren't right. It was because I weren't sincere. I weren't square. It was because I was playing double. 
Deep down in me, I knowed it was a lie, and he knowed it. You can't pray a lie. If we examine our personal prayers carefully, we may discover that we often say things we don't really mean or desire. We're not praying truthfully. The best corrective to this is to focus on the words and phrases we use in prayer and make sure we really mean what we say. It may also help to set aside adequate time for prayer so that we're not rushed, to couple prayer with meditation, and to pray, if possible, in a place of quiet solitude. The Lord's promise, Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you, captures the essence of heartfelt prayer. Heartfelt prayer is not just a list of things to give thanks for and things to ask for. It entails coming to know God. It means seeking understanding of divine truths, seeking to better understand the purpose of our life and how we can best please God. It means talking with the Lord about things that matter most, what Nephi called the things of my soul. Such experiences in prayer are sacred and will be cherished throughout our lives. When we truly pray from the heart, we open our innermost feelings to our Father in Heaven. We tell Him of our challenges, our feelings of inadequacy and weakness. We share our emotions and feelings about decisions that face us or trials we experience. We freely express our sorrows and joys. Now, it is true that God already knows our innermost thoughts and feelings even better than we do. But as we learn to share them with Him, we make it possible for His Spirit to enter our soul and teach us more about our own self and about the nature of God. By making ourselves totally honest, open, and vulnerable before God, our hearts become more receptive to His counsel and His will. Now, prayer should always be reverent and respectful. But our Father in Heaven surely is less concerned about the outward form of our prayer than about our inner heart. For example, kneeling in prayer is an expression of humility and reverence, and it is the manner we often assume when offering our most heartfelt prayers. Nevertheless, not all are able to kneel, and many cannot kneel for very long and still concentrate. The Lord will hear our prayers just as surely if they are said standing, sitting, or even lying on our back in a hospital bed, provided we genuinely pray from the heart. My mission president once said that some of his best prayers were said running between two foxholes during World War II. What should we ask for when we pray? The Bible Dictionary offers this important insight. Prayer is the act by which the will of the Father and the will of the child are brought into correspondence with each other. The object of prayer is not to change the will of God. We should never think of prayer as a matter of trying to change God's mind, to persuade Him of the rightness of our requests, or to counsel Him as to what is best. God's will is perfect. He knows all things and He sees the end from the beginning. He knows far better than we do what is best for us. Sometimes we fervently plead for the Lord to give us certain things that He knows are not ultimately in our best interest or in the interest of a loved one. 
For example, to receive a certain job offer in a specific city or to prolong the life of a terminally ill or aged family member. The first order of prayer should always be to learn the will of God and be given the strength to accept it. Thy will be done ought to grace all prayers as it does the Lord's Prayer. I believe the most frequently asked question about prayer is this. When I am seeking an answer about a question or decision in my life, how do I distinguish between the voice of the Spirit and my own feelings and desires? It's a very good question, for the Spirit often speaks to us in the form of feelings, but then we also have feelings that come from within, just feelings. So how do we know the difference? To begin with, revelation requires effort on our part. We cannot expect answers without first preparing to receive them. When Oliver Cowdery was struggling with translating the plates, the Lord counseled him to study it out in your mind, then ask me if it be right. We begin by learning all that we can about our decision or problem and then carefully weigh and ponder what course may be right. Seeking counsel is appropriate from parents, family members, and friends. Then after we have made a decision, and only then, we go to the Lord with the proposed answer or solution. Normally, He will not give us a revelation regarding specific questions until we have taken this step and are prepared to ask if our decision be right. Receiving answers to prayer also requires that both the mind and the heart be in tune, and we sometimes forget this. Again, when Oliver Cowdery first began to translate the plates, the Lord told him this, Behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost. Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Notice that revelation comes both in the heart and in the mind. Both the feelings of the heart and the understanding of the mind come together to give us an answer. If we have a good feeling but our mind is unsettled, we should continue to study and pray. On the other hand, if in our mind we have developed a plan of action that makes sense but doesn't feel right, we may not yet have the answer. Only when heart and mind are in accord can we be confident that we have reached the right conclusion. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught the importance of the mind in the revelatory process when he said, When you feel pure intelligence flowing into you, it may give you sudden strokes of ideas, so that by noticing it you may find it fulfilled the same day or soon. Thus, by learning the Spirit of God and understanding it, you may grow into the principle of revelation. It is important to understand that the feelings that come with personal revelation are not excited, agitated, or highly emotional. If we want a particular answer badly enough, we might stir up feelings of excitement or artificial enthusiasm within ourselves and then take that for an answer. But that is only a form of self-deception. For the voice of the Lord comes as a still, small voice, and we must silence our own prejudices and emotions 
to hear it. In this regard, I believe that we can overanalyze the scriptural phrase, Your bosom shall burn within you. In my experience, this simply means a feeling of inner peace. Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught the following about that scripture. What does a burning in the bosom mean? Does it need to be a feeling of caloric heat, like the burning produced by combustion? If that is the meaning, he said, I have never had a burning in the bosom. Surely the word burning in this scripture signifies a feeling of comfort and serenity. Another way to describe the feeling associated with revelation is a sense of correctness or rightness. The answer will feel right, again in both heart and mind. It will feel right rather than leaving us with a sense of discomfort or wrongness. Now, one great obstacle to receiving answers from God is fear, for fear is the opposite of faith. I have heard President Boyd K. Packer teach many times, Brethren, do not take counsel from your fears. If you are fearful about leaving Provo or the state of Utah, it will be difficult for the Lord to give you an answer to take a job elsewhere. If you are afraid of getting married, you will somehow never find the answers needed to get there. If we fear to act on the inspiration we receive, it will become more difficult in the future to receive answers. On the other hand, if we learn to move forward in faith as the Spirit guides us, then we will make progress in life and also grow in the principle of revelation. Now, my brothers and sisters, sometimes circumstances arise in our lives when we face an urgent need for divine guidance and have neither the time to study it out nor any possible way of learning more about what course to take. In such circumstances, the Lord will surely guide us if we are open to the promptings and impressions of the Spirit. In the summer of 1976, I spent two months in the Soviet Union with 150 other American students studying Russian. When the program ended late in July, we were given a week free to travel at our own expense anywhere in Europe before catching a charter flight from Paris back to the United States. I spent that week on a shoestring budget visiting friends and converts in the Dusseldorf, Germany mission where I had served a few years earlier. Unfortunately, after booking a second-class train ticket from Dusseldorf to Paris, I realized I was down to the equivalent of only $38 in cash. I had no traveler's checks or credit cards. As the train sped toward Paris, I began to worry how I would find a place to spend the night with so little money. Arriving at the main train station in Paris, I got off the train with my luggage and looked around. I didn't know anyone in France, and I didn't speak the language. The sun was just setting, and I knew it would soon be dark. Suddenly I felt very lonely and somewhat anxious. I offered a simple, heartfelt prayer to the Lord, Heavenly Father, please help me find a safe place to spend the night. 
An impression came to me as plain and clear as any I have ever felt. Walk two blocks forward and turn left, and there will be a hotel where you can spend the night. With a deep feeling of peace, I walked the two blocks forward and I turned left. About a hundred feet in front of me was a small sign, Hotel. I knew this was where the Lord had led me to spend the night. Entering the hotel lobby, I stepped forward to the front desk where a man was sitting. One single room, please, I said. The man hardly looked up. I'm sorry, he said. Every room is booked. We have no vacancies. And he proceeded to ignore me. I asked again, Are you sure that you have no rooms? Perhaps there's been a change or a cancellation. He looked up at me and he said firmly, Young man, we have no rooms. It is the peak of the tourist season, and we have been booked solid for weeks. Every hotel around has been booked for weeks. You will not find a room anywhere in Paris. What could I do? I began to leave the hotel. But as I reached the door onto the street, I thought, I can't just leave. The Lord led me here. I went back to the desk and said, Sir, could you please at least look in your book and verify for sure that you have no rooms available this evening? Someone miffed. He stood up, almost slammed his reservation book on the desk, and began flipping through the pages quickly. You see, he said, there is nothing. We have no rooms. We have no rooms. We have no— And suddenly he stopped and stared at the page in puzzlement for a long time. Then he became very businesslike and said, Well, it appears after all— that we do have one single room vacant. That will be $35. I do not remember much of that night, only that I felt safe and very blessed. The next morning I learned that the bus to Charles de Gaulle Airport left from right in front of the hotel, and to my great relief, the fare was only $3. I arrived at the airport in time to catch my flight to JFK Airport where I was met by my fiancée, Susan, with only a few coins left in my pocket. I reflected on that experience many times. I was no one, really, just one of tens of thousands of students traveling through Europe that summer. The Lord could have said, You got yourself into this mess, you can get yourself out. I suppose I might have slept in the train station or just wandered the streets all night. But instead, As a loving father, he led me to a place of refuge when I sought it in humble prayer. I testify that he will be blessed and be merciful to you too as you come to him in prayer. I know that God the Eternal Father lives. I know that his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our Redeemer. I was 18 years old when I first received a pure witness by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus Christ is a living being, 
a real person, my friend and support in every time of need. In the intervening years, I have come to know that the fruits of the Spirit are joy beyond expression and a deep inner peace that passes all understanding. May His joy and His peace be with each one of you at this sacred season of the year. I offer this prayer and bear this testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is The Power of Prayer. We've just heard from Bruce D. Porter. After the break, we'll return with Joseph Fielding McConkie for Finding Answers. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is the power of prayer. Next is Joseph Fielding McConkie, BYU Emeritus Professor of Ancient Scripture at the time of this address, titled Finding Answers. Addressing the saints in Nauvoo on the subject of Revelation, the Prophet Joseph Smith said, I am going to take up this subject by virtue of the knowledge of God in me, which I have received from heaven. The opinions of men, so far as I am concerned, are to me as the crackling of thorns under the pot or the whistling of the wind. I break the ground. I lead the way like Columbus when he was invited to a banquet where he was assigned the most honorable place at the table and served with the ceremonials which were observed toward sovereigns. A shallow courier present who was meanly jealous of him abruptly asked him whether he thought that in the case he had not discovered the Indies. There were not other men in Spain who would have been capable of the enterprise. Columbus made no reply, but took an egg and invited the company to make it stand on end. They all attempted it in vain, whereupon he took the egg and broke one end and left it standing on the broken part, illustrating that when he had once shown the way to the new world, nothing was easier than to follow it. Having been privileged to have had some rather remarkable mentors, men who have clearly marked the way and having had a few experiences that might be worth sharing, I will take the occasion this morning to make some suggestions relative to the matter of finding answers like making an egg stand on end, the principles are quite simple. And if I can articulate them well enough, it will be as though you always knew them. It was not long after my graduation from this institution 
that I found myself in Vietnam. I had been commissioned an officer in the Army of the United States and was serving as an LDS chaplain. Throughout the country, our LDS servicemen were organized into groups that functioned like quorums and moved with their military units. These groups were placed in one of three districts, each of which, which acted under the direction of a district presidency. My military unit was base-camped in the southern part of the country. Our district president was an Air Force chaplain by the name of Farrell Smith. I served as his first counselor. As chaplains, we were responsible to meet the spiritual needs of the military units to which we were assigned. And then the general assignment was given to us to look after our LDS servicemen wherever we might find them. Time will not permit me to describe the nature of the problems we face. Suffice it to say, they reached far beyond our experience. We were extremely pleased when we received word that Victor Brown of the presiding bishopric was on his way to visit with us. We were to travel with him from one end of the country to the other, meeting with as many of our servicemen's groups as was possible. We quickly made the arrangements. I cite one example. We needed a pilot who could commandeer either a chopper or a fixed-wing craft and be able to fly at a moment's notice. For such arrangements, we bypassed the military chain of command and dealt with a higher authority. The Lord always saw that the right man was in the right place. Chaplain Smith and I then sat in council together. We made a list of the questions we wanted to ask our visiting authority. We divided them up and committed them to memory. When the times and places of our meetings were announced, our servicemen came together from all over Vietnam. We held meetings on the side of runways, in bunkers and ditches. We held meetings with the ground rumbling beneath our feet and the sound of large guns thundering around us. In some instances, we were even able to meet in small military chapels. Between meetings, as soon as we were airborne, Chaplain Smith and I would take turns asking Bishop Brown for his counsel, which was wise, but it became more than evident what we were doing, and he called a sharp halt to our question-asking. He said, Brethren, I'm going to tell you a story. You won't like it, but it's a great story. He then proceeded with his story, and as he had anticipated, we didn't like it. The story centered around a young man who had a very difficult problem. He did not know what to do, and so he visited with his bishop. The bishop listened carefully and thoughtfully. He asked a few questions to assure that he understood all that was involved. He then confessed that he had no idea what counsel to give, but told the young man that he would be meeting with the stake president the next evening and that he would present the matter to him. 
The next evening, the bishop met with the stake president. He explained the young man's problem. The stake president listened attentively and asked a few questions to assure that he understood all that was involved. He then said, Bishop, I have no idea what to tell you, but tomorrow I will be meeting with a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and I will present the matter to him. The next day, as he met with the member of the Quorum of the Twelve, the stake president raised the matter. The apostle listened attentively and asked a few questions to assure that he fully understood what was involved. He then said, President, I have no idea what to tell you, but this afternoon I'll be meeting with President McKay and I'll ask him. That afternoon he met with President McKay and carefully explained the problem. President McKay listened attentively and asked a few questions to assure that he understood all that was involved. And then he said, well, that's his, meaning the young man's, problem, isn't it? Such was the story. We thought the ending a little abrupt. We'd expected a great line, something we could chisel in stone. Instead, we got one of those drab old truths that build character, but they can't raise the hair on your arm. The story brought to an end our question session and the beginning of the realization that our problems were ours and it was for us to solve them. That is why the Lord had placed us there. The lesson is one that we are generally reluctant to learn. I had a father and two grandfathers who shared a great love of the gospel and who had devoted their lives to its study. They were a marvelous source of understanding. I have, however, a very distinct memory of the occasion that I went to my father with some questions, only to receive the response, Look, Junior, you have the same sources available to you as I do to me. More important than any answer these men gave to my questions was their teaching me how to get answers for myself. They are gone now. Questions continue. As does the confidence that the same sources that were available to them are available to me. All of you know that we believe in the ministering of angels. You also know that angels will not do for us what we can do for ourselves. For them to do so would be contrary to the order of heaven. There is a measurable difference between a student coming to my office to seek clarification on something they have read or that was taught in class and the student that comes asking to be taught what they missed because they chose not to come to class or complete the reading assignment, would not the same difference exist between those who keep their covenants and those who choose to miss meetings 
skip their reading and ignore assignments while asking God to overlook their neglect in the dispensing of his blessings. We are generally familiar with the process of revelation announced in the ninth section of the Doctrine and Covenants, where we are directed to study the matter out in our minds, draw the best conclusion we can, and then bring our best offering to the Lord, asking for his approval while yet being ready to accept his counsel otherwise. The very nature of this process is designed to balance our experience and agency with the wisdom of heaven. Now let us couple the wise use of agency with the gift of the Holy Ghost. To enhance our understanding of this gift, let us first distinguish it from the light of Christ, which is given to every soul born into this world. This light, often referred to as conscience, enables people to distinguish between right and wrong and entices them to do things that are edifying, enlightening, and uplifting. Possession of the light of Christ does not require faith in God or the testimony that Jesus is the Christ. Its purpose, however, is to lead all men to that end. Revelations from the Holy Ghost are of a higher order or reach beyond the light and knowledge that is had by the generality of humankind. Membership in the Church is not a requisite to receiving a revelation from the Holy Ghost. Were this the case, no one could obtain the spiritual witness necessary to join the Church. In fact, such a spiritual confirmation is required of those we refer to as converts before they are baptized and before we lay hands upon their head and give them the promise of the gift of the Holy Ghost. We frequently speak of our right to the companionship of the Holy Ghost. We are generally left without any explanation as to what this means. We know that the intent is not to suggest that we stand in a constant deluge of revelation. It is the slothful and unwise servant who has to be commanded in all things. Perhaps an analogy, one taught me by my father, will help in distinguishing between having received a revelation from the Holy Ghost and are having the gift of the Holy Ghost. Imagine yourself traveling in the dark of night through very rugged and difficult terrain, carefully seeking your way to a place of safety where you will be reunited with your family. Let us also suppose that a flash of lightning momentarily marks the path of safety before you. The momentary flash of light pointing you in the direction of safety and shelter 
in our analogy, represents the role or place of the Holy Ghost. If you then follow the path it marked out, it will lead you to the waters of baptism at the hands of a legal administrator who will, as he confirms you a member of the Church, say, Receive the Holy Ghost, which means the gift of the Holy Ghost. The light by which you walk embraces the companionship of the Holy Ghost. It is the light of the gospel, or for some, the gospel in a new light. In either case, it enables you to see that which you could not see before. It now becomes your privilege to walk, as it were, by the light of day. The light is constant, and in most instances the path you are called on to travel is clearly marked. In those instances in which it is not, you are entitled to the necessary vision, impression, or prodding necessary to assure your arrival at the place of safety, to enjoy the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost means, for instance, that as you fill your assignments as a teacher in the Church, if you are prepared properly, you will be taught things from on high as you teach others. Such an experience will require more of you than the kind of presentation in which you simply repeat or rearrange the thoughts of others. The fact that every member of the Church is given the gift of the Holy Ghost is the evidence that the Lord wants to reveal things to you and through you. I have heard my father observe that he learned the gospel by listening to what he was directed to say when he preached the gospel. That experience should be universal among Latter-day Saints. As you young men lay your hands on the heads of your wives to bless them before they give birth to your children, or as you take those children in your arms to give them a Father's blessing, if you hold yourself open to it, thoughts and promises will flow into your mind and you will become an instrument of the Lord in conveying His blessing. As you serve in positions of leadership or trust and seek direction as to who should be called or what should be done, that same Spirit will lead you far beyond your own thought process and mark a course that reaches beyond that which you can see even by the light of day. This is the companionship of which we speak. There will be some instances in which no sure answer comes. We have a series of revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants in which the Lord tells the early missionaries of this dispensation that there were some matters that were to be left to their discretion. The phrase that is constantly repeated is, It mattereth not unto me. Brigham Young explained this doctrine in this language. 
If I do not know the will of my Father and what he requires of me in a certain transaction, if I ask him to give me wisdom concerning any requirement in my life or in regard to my own course or that of my friends, my family, my children, or those that I preside over and get no answer from him, and then do the very best that my judgment will teach me. He is bound to own and honor that transaction, and he will do so to all intents and purposes. So it is that in finding answers we must find the balance between agency and inspiration. Building upon this foundation, let me teach you a very fundamental but often overlooked principle relative to getting answers to prayers and to questions that trouble you. Few things facilitate getting the right answer like asking the right question. Let me illustrate. A young woman came up to me after a meeting at which I had spoken a few weeks ago. She asked if I could help her with a question dealing with the Old Testament. I told her that I would be willing to try. She asked the question, and I didn't have an idea in the world how to answer it. I told her so, and then asked why the answer to such a question was important to her. She indicated that her husband had raised the issue along with a host of like questions. Each question he was asking carried with it the spirit of doubt. His questions were intended to challenge, not to build faith. The real question here is, if I had been able to answer each of the questions with which this man was challenging his wife, would it have accomplished anything more than require him to come up with more questions? The real question needing answering is, why he is so anxious to discredit God and show the foolishness of Scripture. Perhaps he ought be asked, What commandment is it that you don't want to keep? Or what blessing would you like to quit receiving? I recently received a note from a former student. He requests help in answering questions common to anti-Mormon literature. In the instance of these questions, I know the answers, and I also know that my answering them will make no difference whatever unless there is a change in the spirit and purpose of those who ask them. My question is this. Is there really a shortage of evidence that Joseph Smith is a prophet? Are the unanswered questions in the Old Testament the real lion that is in our path? I have a letter on my desk from a mother who tells me a tragic story about the behavior of a man who had been called as a priesthood leader. How, she asked, can she explain to her daughter that callings in this church are inspired and at the same time explain the behavior of this man? While I share her hurt and embarrassment over what took place, 
I cannot help but wonder if she is not asking the wrong question. Surely her faith and that of her daughter cannot be so fragile that the misdeeds of one man would call the truthfulness of the whole gospel plan into question. At issue is if our faith should rest in the fallibility of a priesthood leader or on the assurance that if we keep our covenants, the Spirit of the Lord will always be our companion. Again, often what stands between us and answers to our prayers is our failure to ask the right question. The role of the Holy Ghost is as important in determining what we pray about as it is in bringing the answers we seek. The promise found in the book of James that we may ask wisdom of God requires that we do so in faith, nothing wavering. Of those who waver, James said, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Perhaps the greatest revelation of this dispensation was the one Joseph Smith received, prompting him to go into the woods and find a place to pray. Having read the injunction in James, he said, Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again, knowing that if any person needed wisdom from God, I did. Do you see what is taking place here? Joseph was getting a revelation telling him to go get a revelation. The Spirit was directing him in what he asked. And because the Spirit was his companion in the asking of the question, he could do it with complete faith. In 3 Nephi, Christ is recorded as saying, And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Think of that. We have the sure promise that if we pray in the manner prescribed by Christ and ask for that which is right, our prayers will be answered. Our instruction is to pray to the Father in the name of Christ. To pray in Christ's name obligates us to pray as he would pray or to pray in his spirit. This is true of all that we do in his name. This principle is affirmed in Revelation, both ancient and modern. To those of our day, the Lord said, And if ye are purified and cleansed from all sin, ye shall ask whatsoever you will in the name of Jesus, and it shall be done. But know this, it shall be given you what you shall ask. And again we read, 
He that asketh in the Spirit asketh according to the will of God. Wherefore it is done even as he asketh. To those of his day, John the Beloved wrote, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. I return to where we began with two young chaplains in Vietnam. Upon examination, my story of all stories is most common. Indeed, it is a universal story. For all of us, growing up includes leaving the security of home and the protective care of loving parents to enter a world full of problems and challenges that reach far beyond the experience that is ours. In doing so, we would like to have a ready source to tell us how to handle difficult situations. Such is not the Lord's system. If angels will not do for you what you can do for yourself, be assured that the Holy Ghost will not do it either. It is not the design of heaven that we be rescued from all difficult situations. Rather, it is the system that we grow up and learn to handle them. The sense of being overwhelmed is very much a part of the journey. The power with which God clothes us in his holy temple does not suppose that the journey we have been called to make will be an easy one. Nevertheless, the path we seek will always be clearly marked by the covenants we have made and the callings we have received. It is in the accepting of our lot and moving forward with what the Lord has asked of us that we discover that the Holy Ghost enjoys our company. Angels feel constrained to join us, and the heavens open to our vision. Of such I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was The Power of Prayer, with thoughts from Bruce D. Porter and Joseph Fielding McConkie. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.